So the most important thing about Vancouver is not you. It is not my mother. It is not any of the myriad of people that I like, but simply sushi from Tokyo Joe's. Shout out to those fools. Uh, and the fact that on the 25th of June, I will be consuming that sushi on the way home from the airport. So that's very Perfect. exciting. Yes. Uh, and the greatest thing about sushi is obviously the soy sauce because this is a fermentation season. So we have to discuss that. Just kidding. It's not. <laughs> but also it is. So my stepdad, Steve, is addicted to soy sauce. He puts it on literally everything. I think it's like all old men that just like not. Sorry, Steve. All, all kind things to you. Uh, that really like. I think when you get to a certain age, though, you really like a salty profile if you're a man. Like, which is why I'm so popular with those middle-aged men. <laughs> yes, that and vanilla ice cream. <laughs> yes, those are the choices <laughs> of uh, that age group. Uh, but anyways, he has to douse everything in soy sauce. Like, things that don't belong with soy sauce, but should. But anyways, when we go to Tokyo Joe's, we get, like, a massive amount of sushi. So much that they're often like, is this for eight or nine people? And we're like, we would just, like, three sets of chopsticks, please. Um, anyways, (laughs) so they give you all the little, like, mini packets of soy sauce, but Steve refuses to use them, so we have to cut them open and, like, drain them through, like, a, the, what's the thing, the, you know what I'm talking about, big on the outside funnel. funnel. You're making a funnel. I'm making a funnel, yeah, you gotta, you gotta put them through a funnel so that they go into his little soy sauce bottle so that he can pour them easily, and it is a labor of love, I suppose, but it's very irritating. (laughs) But also, I guess, good that we don't have a million packets in the fridge because they look trashy that way. This is true. I feel like this is the time that I should maybe confess that I actually barely use soy sauce on sushi when I get it. Same. It's not, like, my number one thing. I think mostly it's because I'm too lazy. I just feel like I don't want that level of salt. Like, I like the freshness of a sushi. As, you know, you should. I feel like that's kind of a beautiful element to it. But I don't know some pieces and isn't it a thing that like in high-end sushi like you will be served the soy sauce with the things that are supposed to be consumed the soy sauce with as opposed to just like having a bottle on the table because like like the they're the chef has prepared it to be eaten in a specific way like how you're not supposed to salt food in like high-end exactly soy sauce is just asian salt <laughs> oh no um well Don't start to this show <laughs> All that and more on this episode of Pantry Staples. The podcast where we dish on your favorite foods. I am Marika. And I'm Emily. And as you may have noticed, we're talking soy sauce today on the last episode of our fermentation season. So, yeah. It's, it's what a, done. It's a doozy. <laughs> it's, yeah, we've put all the things into a barrel and we're going to put it in a safe area, not too cold, not too hot, and we're going to leave this to sit for a few months while we take the summer off. Or some of the summer off. I don't know. Yeah. I'm de- indeterminate. And see what happens. <laughs> we'll come back and it'll be a little funkier. Yeah. A little funkier. Maybe it'll be a food disaster. Haha, <laughs> spoiler, that's the season's mm-hmm. theme next next time. Uh, anywho, sh- shall we get started? Should we get the show on the road? Yeah, soy sauce. Let's uh, give me the... Okay. I was so, gonna say tea, but that doesn't work. But give me the brew. Yeah, the soybeans. Um. So first off, soy sauce, not the original form that soybeans were being used in. Soy sauce is something that like 
it's the more modern equivalent of like a bunch of other like processes basically because uh-huh. fermentation has been around since people decided to start doing stuff basically and uh that's the technical term for how history works when people were doing it stuff yeah. um but anyways around a thousand bce it's called jiang was created and this is the predecessor am i saying that right j-i-a-n-g anyways uh i sh- whatever uh, this is the predecessor to modern soy sauce and miso paste. Mm. Uh, so in the text Rites of Zoo, which is a Chinese text, uh, it is described as being made with either meat or fish, salt, and a fermentation starter called liang qiu, gu, and leaving it to ferment for 100 days. This fermented starter is basically the, like, it's basically koji, which we talked about when we discussed miso. Um mm. So it, it's like you get a weed and you get like the specific type of bacteria that grows on it, and that's what we're using yes. to create these tastes. So it's mm-hmm yellow aspergilli which is grown on millet traditionally so this is first produced in china and it is the start of soy sauce across asia and the rest of the world uh but like i'm saying it's this is 1000 bce and this doesn't look anything like soy sauce that we see today like it's not at all that first of all we have meat and fish and like other stuff in it and it's not just like soybeans anyways we're not uh, yet at the bean fish divide not at the bean fish divide um so let's jump ahead like quite a bit and talk about Korea. So soy sauce mm. is being produced in Korea around 57 BCE. I'm going to just fill in the blanks for that like jump in time, which is soy sauce continued to develop. Yeah. More things happened. It got more bean-fish divide. <laughs> and uh, it became more like what we know. Right. Uh, anyways, in the Chinese text, The Records of the Three Kingdoms, a, there's a quote that says, Goguryeo people, which is a kingdom that is was sorry, was in Korea, like ancient mm-hmm. Korea, uh, and basically it's Korean people, but like from a specific area, uh, are good at brewing fermented soybeans. So cool. they did it. They know it. They're over there, like living it up. Uh, there's also uh, artistic depictions of jangdoks, which are the containers used to serve and sto- serve and store soy sauce that are found in Korean mural paintings from oh, cool. around this era, which is super cool. What do they look uh, like? <laughs> I did not manage to find any, but I just oh. heard the record of it, so sorry. No, that's fine. Cool. Oh, the jars are like, it's like earthenware pottery, yeah. pottery basically. Yeah, so, sorry, I'm like, I, I can't give you an artistic, like, analysis <laughs> of the imagery. That's what I want. Sorry. Uh, in 160 CE, uh, Shi mentions in the monthly ordinances of the four classes of people, which is a, another, like, historic Chinese text, mm-hmm. uh, for the first time, uh, Jiang Jian, which is the next iteration of this kind of proto soy sauce, which is made from that original uh, kind of base. Yeah. Then we have uh, again another decent jump, 544 CE in China's The Important Arts for the People's Welfare by Jian Sixi. Which I'm sorry, I was like reading that title. I'm like, ooh, that's a that's a name right there. Uh, <laughs> this text is actually the world's, or is claimed to be the world's earliest encyclopedia of agriculture, which is super neat yeah anyways there's a description there on how to make soy sauce and it's again a little bit closer to what we would assume it to be today Mm -hmm. uh then we jump even further ahead when is soy sauce being introduced kind of further afield than china and korea well it gets to japan around the 7th century when buddhist monks are bringing it with them so vegetarianism all the other stuff that they do and (laughs) soy sauce uh very pretending Just stealing everything from the Chinese and then later pretending that they didn't. Oh my god. Just all the Asian countries being like, no me, no me. It's like, okay guys, calm down. I don't know. Could somebody just pick a a thing? Yeah. Um, Anyways, 
So that's a cool stuff. And then obviously it took off rather successfully in Japan. (laughs) They might even be like known for it today. So then in the 12th century CE, Chinese sage Wu Tzu Mu listed the six foodstuffs essential to life which is rice, salt, Mm. vinegar, soy sauce, oil, and tea. Which, if you look at this, what an interesting list, too. Because you have to ferment the vinegar, you have to ferment the soy sauce, and tea is something that is going to be fermented to do a lot of things with. Like, how nifty is that? That everything, like, I don't know, how central it all is, right? And also just, like, adorable that soy sauce is an essential. Because for me, not so much. I would put ice cream in that list instead. But also, that's, you know, 21st century priorities different strokes different folks i had a kit kat like uh, ice cream bar yesterday on my way home from work just like eating that on my walk i was living my best life oh yum it was so good highly recommend um (laughs) so let's talk even further around 1630 the earliest ancestors of what would become the kikoman corporation which is the soy sauce literally everybody knows uh began making soy sauce in noda japan so that's 1630. That's quite some time ago, which yes. is wild. Then soy sauce arrives in many Western countries before actual soybeans do because soy sauce was such a popular trading commodity. Um, mm-hmm. Where did all this trading start? Not in China, where soy sauce itself started, but in Japan. Even though we have the mm. um, shogunate, the Tokugawa shogunate, where basically trade is not a thing. We've discussed this before. Uh, in 1633, the Dutch are still able to trade with Japan, which, weird choice right. to make the Dutch your friends. I don't feel like we talk about them enough. Everybody just, like, totally likes to forget that the Dutch were, like, well in it, you know? They were yeah. all in Africa. They were fucking shit up left, right, and center. It's like, again, we don't talk about the Dutch, and we don't talk about the Portuguese or the Spaniards. We only talk about the French and the British. Maybe that's just us, like, from Canada having those very, like, skewed perspectives. But, like, there's a few other players that were fucking shit up. I think it's just that, like, the Dutch and the Portuguese and then the Spanish were all kind of in that first wave of, mm-hmm. like, early exploration and colonization that, like... Yes, yeah, second wave were colonization usurped. is what we focus on. Well, because it's sort of more, like, closely tangential. Like, there's not mm. as many, especially not in, like, North America, as, like, mm. many reference to... Although I guess, like, New York is New Amsterdam. New, yes. Right? I have no idea. Yes. There was Dutch. that show on um, Netflix, New Amsterdam, about that hospital. I enjoyed that. Did you ever watch it? No. I don't watch the hospital shows. I only want copaganda. Copaganda is so trash. I can't. I know. It's the worst. Uh, also, Law and Order SVU was very formative in my life. I've told you my theory that Law and Order SVU and Sex and the City should be in the same universe because that would be fucking fabulous. They probably are. I'd believe that. Thank you. Let's go with that new fan theory. Cool. Uh, anyways, <laughs> so the Dutch are trading with Japan, even though nobody else is allowed to. Big win for them. Mm-hmm. They purchase shoyu, which is the Japanese name for soy sauce. Yes. And first they're trading this in uh, Indonesia. Then later they're taking it into the Netherlands. They record the name phonetically, which was transformed shoyu in 1633 when they first started into soy by 1680, just because of hmm. spelling mistakes. So that's how we get the name. Classic. Uh, I know. When it finally reaches America by 1750, it's known as India soy, which is It's not great. even from India. Yeah, I don't know. These people can't. <laughs> Whatever. Like, okay. They're just like, I don't know. Shit's here. Let's just do it. Um, so that's how the sauce itself is getting around. Now, what about the beans? Because 
you can't start production in like you know cemented in other cultures until we've moved those around mm-hmm. first time soybeans are introduced to american soils was 1765 by samuel bowen a former employee of the east india trading company who brought them from china to his new home in savannah georgia which savannah georgia nobody talks about them enough but they seem fucking wild over there georgia's nuts yeah the whole state just seems like an absolute abomination Mm -hmm. like they've strayed so far from god's light anyways um so samuel as well as a friend planted them as they saw that they grew most favorably in the climate there they thought like oh yeah this is similar enough like we're a good enough spot i guess yeah yeah like a lot of shit grows in georgia right the that peaches. whole area. That's what yeah. everyone likes to talk about. <laughs> um, so he brought these beans to be used to make soy sauce and vermicelli noodles, as well as an option for cattle feed. So 1766, he was actually awarded a gold medal from the Society of Arts, Manufacturers, and Commerce, as well as 200 guineas from King George III for his cultivations. Hmm. So he was pretty successful with this crop. Uh, on July 1st, 1767, Samuel Bowen received a patent number... 878 for his new invention or sorry newly invented method of preparing and making sago vermicelli and soy from plants growing in america to be equal in goodness to those made in the east indies he even exports his sauce to england oh interesting just another time that the white man's taken those asian jobs uh this is a quote that I have from 1813, and it's how to determine the quality of soy sauce. Huh. It's stated it can be shaken in a glass to determine its quality. Soy should be chosen of a good flavor, not too salt or too sweet, of a good thick consistency, of a dark brown color, and clear. When shaken in a glass, it should leave a coat on the surface of a bright yellowish brown color. If it does not, it is of an inferior kind and should be rejected. I want to test that out. Yeah, I know, right? Uh, so that was pretty neat. Mm-hmm. 1837 Worcestershire sauce starts to be made at 68 Broad Street, Worcester, England, by Lee and Perrins. So soy sauce is the main ingredient in this. So how did I not know this? You didn't? No. I mean, I just, I ignore Worcestershire sauce because I don't like it. Really? <laughs> the oh, fish. man. The fish. Fair enough. I love Worcestershire sauce only because... Like, only in Caesar salad dressing, really. I don't think I would use it for anything else. But when I make my Caesar salad dressing at work, like, she she dark. Because I'm, like, putting that stank on it with the Worcestershire. Uh, I feel like otherwise there's not enough. Like, yeah, the anchovies give it that umami. But, like, I don't feel like there's enough in it. Anyways. Mm-hmm. I've, I have actually used soy sauce as, like, a Worcestershire replacement in things. Yeah. Totally makes sense. So that makes sense. Yeah. Because it's basically just soy sauce with fish in it. Again, the bean fish divide, they're trying to narrow it back down in this creation. They're like, we just want these things back together again. I'm fine uh, with that. Do it. Yeah, why not? Uh, 1910, more than half of all soy sauce exported from Japan is Kikoman brand, to show you. So they are just killing the game. I didn't want to talk too much about them because I kind of just assumed you were going to. I don't have a ton, but I have some <laughs> exactly again like i i, I know yeah. uh, it is not until approximately the 20th century that wheat is being used with any regularity in soy sauce recipes though it is not the most like it's it's not super common i think it's not uncommon either though mm-hmm. because before again you go through this like we have this jang which is like all this other stuff like fish and meat and blah 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 the fermentation and then you get this thing that is mostly soybeans and like this um koji and then now you're like okay and now we're gonna reintroduce like more different kinds of wheat into it i guess so we're switching it up 
Is that just because wheat's more readily available? I think so. Yeah. I'm not 100% sure, but that would be my assumption. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, that is what I have. That is all my information. But I would like to, before we start on your section, give you a quote because you know I love a quote. And also, I just feel like this really sums up the entire season so well and is like so <laughs> lovely. So, eating fresh natural food was regarded with suspicion verging on horror, something to which only the uncivilized, the poor, and the starving resorted. When the compiler of the Confucian classic, The Book of Rites, circa 200 BCE, distinguished the first humans, people who had no no alternative to wild, uncooked foods, from civilized people who took advantage of the benefits of fire, who taste grilled, boiled, and roasted, he was only repeating a commonplace. When the ancient Greeks took it as a sign of bad times if people were driven to eat greens and root vegetables, they too were rehearsing a common wisdom. Happiness was not a verdant garden of Eden abound in fresh fruits, but a securely locked storehouse jammed with preserved, processed foods. I just loved it so much. <laughs> so there you go. In defense of processed foods. Love it. Yeah, it was this really interesting article that I read, and it was basically like, all foods are processed, like, don't get it twisted. And yeah, like, eating just, like, mm-hmm. an apple off a tree, very, like, delicious and all that, but not a sustainable practice if you don't live in a place where apples grow 24-7. So, yeah, that is why we love fermentation so much. And now, to Marika. <laughs> um, okay, well, I... I'm not going to start with a quote, but I am going to start with, like, a concept that I think is another one. <laughs> Sorry. It's, it's something that kind of comes up again and again throughout this podcast and, like, is maybe really what we're about. And mm-hmm. it's the idea of food traditions being used to connect people to place. Yes. And it's, so the one sort of, like, article that I read was getting into a very philosophical argument of, like, foods as objects which is to say that their meaning is defined by the person who's consuming them. And then even like going so far as to be like, could you say that food only becomes food once it is consumed? Is an object food if we spit it out? Ugh, what a fantastic article. And like, yes, a completely like intrinsic to this podcast concept of like, it is only given meaning once we decide we care about it. Yeah, and then in the same way, like, that whether a food is a food being dependent on the consumer, so mm-hmm. too is it supposed nationhood. Mm. So, you know, soy sauce in and of itself is, like, is it Chinese? Is it Japanese? Is it Korean? Is it American? Like, mm-hmm. all of that. But then does adding, say, a tablespoon of soy sauce to a dish automatically make it Japanese? Like, obviously not. Oh my gosh. Yes fabulous or like the idea that you have like spicy korean tacos which i've told you that i've enjoyed numerous <laughs> times since you sent me that recipe because you've added a little bit of kimchi like yeah. it's not a korean recipe yeah and then it's interesting to almost go like the reverse like what does that say like okay yeah adding soy sauce to a dish doesn't make a japanese but then what does that say about soy sauce as like the shining symbol of japanese or like asianness Mm hmm. Fascinating. Hmm. So, yes, we've said it before, but I will say it again and again and again. The idea of a quote, national or local cuisine is only given meaning in relation to what it is not and who has a stake in preserving or protecting it. I love that. 
So anyway, I don't know. That was just like my philosophical stuff. But now let's get into just like me screaming about Japan and, and stuff. Perfect. <laughs> so well, as I was doing this mm. research, sorry to interrupt yesterday night, mm-hmm. I was like doing some Googling and stuff. And I was like, fuck, Japan is so shady and nobody wants to talk about it. Like, they're such problem causers in so many situations. And yet they somehow have gotten off scot-free with like this super chill like image. Like, what's that about? Ridiculous. Because they're, like, so nice. Like, it's just the culture. I I think especially, like, to Americans and, like, Mm. North American consumers, like, the Japanese culture is so appealing. Like, it's it's foreign enough that it's, like, exciting, but it's also very, like, approachable. Like, we can understand it. And there's almost, I want to say, like, a, like, oh, I don't know how to say this correctly, but, like... (laughs) Uh, I, I don't want to say a feminization of, like, the culture mm-hmm. in general, but, like, there's this mm-hmm. real, like, lack of, like, that alpha, like, masculine energy that seems unthreatening to us, even though there definitely yes. isn't, like, lol, ninjas, and samurais come from <laughs> Japan, so, like, I think they're fine. I mean, ninjas and samurais are made up, but, like, they did have a military dictatorship for, like, years, so. I'm sorry, samurais are made up? Uh, oh my god we do not have time to get into this today but good to know (laughs) i'll look that up independently i knew ninjas were okay yeah oh my god this is fucking mortifying two things (laughs) i feel like this is the second thing that's been mortifying for me not to understand on this podcast there's so many every time but like my lack of understanding of napoleon and now this it's like holy shit (laughs) oh you've got to get your like You've got to get your 171800s like research under wraps. I really do. I have no idea what went on then and I fucking refuse to it learn. It doesn't matter. It's only the reason yeah. that the entire <laughs> world is the way it is. I um, mean, you could say that about okay. literally any date, okay? I know. I know. I know. It's history. Please continue. <laughs> um okay. So <laughs> Uh, I want to talk about product design because this is fun. Love it. So there's this one image that everybody knows, and it is from Katsushika's... Yeah, I think that's right. Katsushika Hokusai's uh, series of woodcut prints called 36 Views of Mount Fuji from 1831. Mm. The most recognizable image from the series is called Under the Wave of Kanagawa, and you absolutely know the image. Oh, yes. it's the wave. It's the one that yeah. sometimes gets turned into pugs or like other things. Love that. Yes. So it's a giant foaming wave threatening to crash down on a handful of small wooden boats with Mount Fuji in the distant background. Mm-hmm. And this image of the great wave is arguably Japan's first global brand. Love that. Which for is them. fun. Yeah. Yeah. Um, part of the reason with, that like. The- water theme you know that's cute yeah like tsunamis <laughs> yeah that's cute continue well so part of the reason that the work is like really renowned in europe and america is because it's like a key influence in the development of european modernism and i could get into flatness and the rule of thirds and how like the white capped wave is sort of reminiscent of ejaculation in a very similar way to jackson pollock but i'm not gonna do that all right. I feel like anytime anyone talks about foamy waves, it's always about ejaculation, really. All of modernism. Like, mm-hmm. 
<laughs> look at a Jackson Pollock and look at your life. Um, but yes, the fact that it became a totally commercialized image is very interesting because in Japan, it isn't actually seen as a masterpiece because it's like a woodcut print, which is like cheap, mass produced, populist. So it's actually kind of always been a commercial product. Interesting. We can see this starting with like museum gift shops, which are always the number one place to commodify like art objects. I love going into a museum gift shop and seeing which of the pictures they've decided are the ones like, and you always know kind of like which are the big hits that are going to go on stuff. But oh my God, I love it so much. Sometimes there's some fun surprises. It's like, oh, we're going with this Van Gogh. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I remember the first time I went to the Musée d'Orsay, there's the painting, what it's, I don't remember the artist, but it's a, the birth of the world or something like that. It's a vagina, basically. And I just remember <laughs> being like, well, I gotta get a bunch of postcards of this. It's great. Yeah, it's fantastic. Oh, Gustave Corbett. Yeah, that one's great. Thank you. There we go. <laughs> The Great Wave is no exception to this rule. It's printed on tea towels, fridge magnets, t-shirts, mugs. And, and memefied with the pugs and the other things that, like, the wave is, yes. Well, yeah, and, like, that's the thing. So it's, like, it's kind of, like, you see it in a museum, which makes sense because that's where a lot of ones, but then it does. Like, the wave is so, I don't know what it is about it, but it's just on everything. So this one, the article that I was reading gave an example um, of it being used on the packaging for bars of soap. So it's this one from like a novelty store in New York and the soap package had a modified image of Hokusai's wave adding the Sino-Japanese character for eternity and in English, quote, the perfect spa water, dot, 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 aroma, dot, 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 the healing place, the unwinding place. Oh my. It's like barely English, but it's made in Australia. That's hilarious for one. Also, just like I love the idea that they're like the healing place as they put a picture of a tsunami right next to it. Like that juxtaposition <laughs> is great. Yeah, I mean, okay, the wave isn't necessarily like isn't actually representative of a tsunami, and there's like a bunch of different like ways you can look at it. But no, like, no, but still, just like is is that ain't healing. But it's because like the wave has become so removed from like the Mm. referent of a wave like it just is like aha japan which in an american mind is like a place of tranquility purity tradition all of those Mm. femininity as we were talking about minutes ago wild to go to kikomon in uh 2008 the soy sauce brand ran an ad that featured a dramatic close-up of a deep amber liquid the soy sauce, splashing mm-hmm. in the shape of Hokusai's wave, cresting not over Mount Fuji, but the Kikomon logo. And the tagline was, culinary art from Japan. I feel like I've seen that, actually. I think I have, too. Oh my god, I love that. I just, I also think it's so funny, because, like, as we've been saying, soy sauce is not intrinsically Japanese. But, again, the ad is just leaning on the Western conceptualization of Japan through the wave image. And then using that to assert soy sauce's Japanese-ness. I love it so much. Yeah. Also, like, at this point, soy sauce is Japanese. Like, it's, it's Chinese, it's all of them. Like, nothing matters. And the, it's so funny that we have these conversations, because I spend my entire, like, research period and, like, my 
portion of this discussion being like, let me tell you the facts about where this shit's from and like trying to really nail this stuff down and then you come in and you're like, and nothing matters. And I'm like, yep, it's true. <laughs> uh, I mean, yes. But I think that's also the point of this podcast is like, it's you good have to, to go know, back. You have to know what stuff is about in order to like discredit it almost, you know? Yeah. Or not discredit, t- but like, you know what I mean. Not, not discredit. Mm-hmm. Okay. So here's some fun tea on Kikomon. Love it. In 1989, in San Francisco, the Kikomon Corporation was taken to court by their Japanese-American business partner, Sugihara Jozo, who wanted official credit for the massive company's success in the international read American market. Mm -hmm. The suit went all the way back to an oral agreement in 1957 when Kikomon and Sugihara were preparing to introduce Shoyu to the U.S., Okay. It's like most of their business had apparently been conducted with the terms of trade being like kind of assumed implicitly. (laughs) And there was an expectation that decades of like quote unquote understandings and mutual sacrifice and benefit existed between the partners until like it didn't. Yo, this is why handshake agreements straight up don't work. I like... It fucking drives me crazy when, like, especially, again, not to shit on middle-aged men this entire episode with their fucking salt, vanilla, ice cream, and handshake agreements, but, like, every time they're like, yeah, I miss doing like that, like, these fucking contracts to say all this, blah, blah, It's like, bro, this is for everyone's protection that we have shit in writing. Yeah, and also, like, those, like, big fat cat businessmen who miss handshakes miss doing handshakes because that was the best way to, like, t- take to advantage fuck people of the over. Yeah. Guy. Yeah. Oh, ridiculous. Uh, So yes, the article that I was reading was like very much just like going into like the legal thing and like international trade and blah, blah, blah. And I was like, "Mm, I would just like to know about how they got into the US market. So here's that. Love it. So the early 1950s, soy sauce was only sold like in the US in like big metal containers to like Asian American restaurant workers and I guess normal people. But the new plan was to market small bottles to white people. Love it. We love Which, small bottles. I love a small bottle. Everyone loves Bitches love small bottles, small bowls. Tiny bowls are white people. Oh, I have so many tiny bowls. And you love them. I do. Yep. So yes, at the time, this was like kind of a big deal and like a considerable hurdle because white Americans used to call soy sauce bug juice fucking dicks it's like first of all like what even is that burn like it's just mean what even is that burn (laughs) i just love that that's your complaint about that not like anything else just like that's a bad insult (laughs) i i guess i mean maybe it's like it must be like horrible and maybe i should like have trigger warning that but i'm just like there's white people are so lame yes (laughs) and then so yes so that's what it used to be but then by like the mid 50s the u.s was experiencing a japan boom so hello white woman writing oriental cookbooks Mm -hmm. and japanese food and products were like super popular among general consumers as if like japanese internment in hiroshima didn't happen like five years ago (laughs) (laughs) so anyway chill (laughs) So anyway, Sugihara 
pushed Kikoman to take advantage of this boom and promote a product line of teriyaki and soy sauces, which obviously worked because as of 1990, when this article was written, Kikoman controlled about two thirds of the California market and at least a third of the rest of the U.S., which I guess it's, is it bigger now? I don't. I think it is. I imagine so. Just because like soy sauce is bigger now. Yeah, everybody will not stop eating sushi. We are going to eat the oceans dry. Thank God. Let's just do it. Get rid of all the fish. Screw biodiversity. Just start growing fish in labs. Yeah, sure. I don't care. It's like better than like farmed, isn't it? I don't know. Yeah. Oh, farmed fish are so yucky. Then again, everything's yucky about the ocean, quite frankly. <laughs> okay. Let's talk soy sauce and health. Sort of. Okay. This Love article it. from the Science Newsletter of 1929, which is like, <laughs> ugh, just like the chef's p- kiss. Pinnacle. Yes. Total chef's kiss of hyperbolic early 20th century writing. Love it. The author chastises the reader right off the bat. Quote, <laughs> don't scorn the humble bottle of soybean sauce next time you eat at a Chinese restaurant. And then it goes on to say that new research has found that soy sauce not only aids digestion, but also contains a, quote, rather large portion of the vitamin that promotes fertility. (laughs) Indeed, like, the title of this five-sentence article proclaims, quote, bean sauce has vitamin, but there's no hint to what that actual vitamin might be. I'm obsessed with everything about that. Also, the fact that it's a five-sentence article. Like, thanks for that. It was, like, like, so short. We don't have time for this. We're just gonna tell you. It's the vitamins. Like, seriously. Just, please drink soy sauce. There, it has a vitamin. And it's like... Oh my god. But what? I mean, I I imagine, like, soy? Like, estrogen? I don't know. Yeah, I suppose estrogen. Isn't that, like, soybeans are super high in estrogen? Yeah, that was the whole thing where, like, dudes were afraid that drinking soy milk would... They would get tits from soy milk, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm R.I.P. that myth. More men with boobs. That is this podcast's stance officially. (laughs) Yeah, that seems like a great plan. You know what? Bras for all. Or just no bras for all. I physically can't do that. It's too painful for my lifestyle. Okay, fair enough. So speaking of hyperbolic writing, Mm -hmm. I, I know that this is not soy sauce. But it's not unrelated, and I want to talk about MSG and so-called Chinese food poisoning. Thank you, finally. First of all, we should actually do a full episode on MSG, possibly for our upcoming season. Such a disaster that everyone hates it so much. But here's like a quick thing. Also because I found a 1968 issue of the CDC's Morbidity and Mortality Weekly Report. Oh my. Hilarious that that exists, but also hilarious that this bullshit article was in that report. So we have what certified quack and fearmonger E. (laughs) Charlton Prather, M.D. Prather, M.D., oh my. Called, quote, an outbreak of food poisoning in Pompano Beach, Florida. Oh, Prather, because he's a Pratt. Sorry. Prather. His last name is Prather. But I'm saying proud, oh. like, you know, mm. the diss. Good. You're like, yeah, Emily, really, thanks for getting that one at the end there. <laughs> Continue. Okay. So this outbreak consisted <laughs> of five people who became ill with headaches, facial flushing, 
nausea and tingling sensations around the mouth. It's just me after eating a pineapple. It's everyone after eating a lot of food. Anyway, our quack reporter determined that the culprit (laughs) was the wonton soup, which he asserted was flavored with monosodium glutamate in excess. He claimed that the restaurant went through a 100-pound barrel of MSG every six to eight weeks, which I feel like I can't conceptualize. Like, is that a thing? It doesn't determine the size of the restaurant, the volume of business they're doing, how many of their recipes need it. That's a bullshit statistic. Yeah, and it's just like fear money because like 100 pounds, like 100 pounds, like... That's 100 things of butter. I don't know how to describe it any more than that. That's large. But also... How much food are you making? Yeah, eight weeks is also like a long time. Anyway, so although no samples of the soup in question were taken, (laughs) Prather's MD felt the need to alert the CDC to the very serious 10 to 30 minutes of mild discomfort that five people in Florida experienced. Oh my god, I need a minute to sit with that information. So, five people had headaches. This is like whenever anyone complains about food poisoning and then you look at their bill and they're like, oh, you didn't eat for the entire day because you told me that and you've had like eight cocktails yourself and nothing but cream and butter and fat. Like, sure, we fucked up there. It's like, sir, I think you're just hungover. Yeah. Oh my God, that's brutal. My main question coming away from this was like, was Prathers one of the afflicted? Like, how else could he have known of this extremely non-threatening, hyper-local issue? Very good question. My second question is, does the CDC not have, like, a higher bar for, like, what qualifies to get a complaint? Like, are they not like, okay, five people having slight headaches is not really on our fucking jurisdiction. Just go talk to someone else. Like, we're dealing with, like, Ebola. I don't know. I don't know what they do. I mean, I think it is important to remember that this is 1968. Oh, what a bullshit time. It's just... Yeah. Yeah. So, the food pri- the food poisoning described <laughs> here is precisely the beginning. Like, this 1968... This is a little bit later, but it's close enough. It's when the demonization of MSG and its link to Chinese restaurant syndrome all began. The fact that anyone was cool with that is insane. Like, who just went and was like, yeah, Chinese restaurant syndrome, I have it. Oh my god. It's... The the story is so nuts, and I'll... I... So, 1968. Dr. Robert Homan Kwok wrote to the New England Journal of Medicine asking for help in identifying the cause of the numbness, palpitations, and general weakness consumers experienced after dining in Chinese restaurants. He offered up four possible culprits. Soy sauce, cooking wine, the high sodium content in the food, or MSG. The journal was quickly bombarded with letters from people claiming to have experienced the same phenomenon, And within months, Chinese restaurant syndrome had become a cultural touchstone. Ugh. So, uh, yeah, the whole thing is very 
like nuts and I have like a distant memory of like years ago listening to a podcast possibly this American life where they did a deep dive on this story and apparently they had like a white doctor guy who claims that he wrote the quack letter as like a joke (gasps) but then there's like another actual like doctor quack whose daughter was like no no like my dad wrote this so interesting that's a fun mystery I should have looked up what that actually was, but I couldn't find it. Well, I feel like we'd never get conclusive evidence one way or the other. Exactly. That is very interesting. Yeah, so the whole thing is either, like, a joke or, like, who's to say? Very quick rundown MSG in Mm -hmm. chemical terms. Monosodium L-glutamate monohydrate. It's the sodium salt of the amino acid glutamate. Okay. Science. It was, dis- <laughs> it was discovered <laughs> as a flavor enhancer in 1908 by Kikune Ikeda in Japan, who isolated it from sea tangles, which the Japanese had been cooking with for centuries. What exactly is a sea tangle? Is it just uh, a kind of seaweed? I'm going to say yes. I love that name, though. Like I know, sea it's tangles. Fun. Sea yeah. tangles. Uh, so... There's lots of other foods where levels of MSG can be found naturally, not just like seaweeds. So like mm. tomato juice, Parmesan cheese. Mm. It's it's basically like umami is yeah. the whole MSG thing, which again, whole episode on its own. Yep. MSG can be manufactured by fermenting starches, molasses, or sugar. Um, and in its form, like the processed form, it has been heavily used in like all processed foods in America since the 40s. Yeah. Which is another reason that the whole, like, Chinese restaurant syndrome thing is like, but you guys have been just eating this normally for at least two decades. So, four, mm-hmm. three decades. Yeah. Oy, oy, oy. White people. There were, like, a lot of studies. <laughs> um. So, like, a bunch of case reports were published that were showing the like relation between Chinese restaurant syndrome and MSG. I think a lot of those case reports are like the Prathers one where it's just like, I know of all these people who went and then they felt dizzy and blah, blah, blah. And then. Are you sure? Because it's Florida. They probably are just a bunch of old people. They're just dizzy every time they stand up, I assume. Yes. So I don't even know. There were so many studies and they all found like, yeah, like, if you give people a fuck ton of MSG, they're gonna have, like, bad reactions. But that's just, like... If you give anyone a fuck ton of anything, they're gonna have a bad time. <laughs> yeah, so it's just, like, uh... It's like, oh, shit, new study. You have a stomach ache after you eat a bunch of chocolate? What? Yeah. <laughs> and then they also, they also found that there was, like, a good, like, portion of study participants who just, like, felt kind of, like tingly and like had a weird reaction anytime they ate like any food (laughs) oh no can you oh my god that's so sad can you imagine just being like yeah i don't know i eat and then i just tingle funny well it might be that like the like something about the being in a study situation people were just like amped up and like over critical of like anything they're feeling it's like yeah like if you eat a lot you're gonna feel weird anyway it's just it's nuts, and I'm obsessed. 
And uh, basically the whole MSG thing is more about racism and xenophobia and maybe people mm-hmm. eating too much uh, than about actual like food poisoning or a syndrome. Oh yes, and gluttony and racism are two favorites. <laughs> keystones of America. Oof, so dark. But like, even if it is a real thing, the symptoms last for like literally 10 to 13 minutes and like, it's not like someone's died. Kombucha, Again, looking at you. Isn't it crazy that people like take the time to research this stuff and it's like, there's bigger fish to fry. The stakes are so low. So low. <laughs> That's pretty much all I've got. Perfect. I feel like, I don't know, any la- soy sauce thoughts? It's, um, it's good stuff. Ooh, my mom bought a soy sauce from a mm. guy who like makes miso and now show you. And super cool. I want to say Abbotsford. I feel like there's some interesting stuff going on in Abbotsford culinarily wise, which is shocking because it's Abbotsford. I know. Anyway, no so to I our could Abbotsfordians. I will post in our I'll post about that so that I can get the guy's actual name because it seems lovely. Fun. Yeah, it does seem fun. <laughs> it's good. Um I'm really into that. Uh any closing thoughts on the season? What have you learned about fermentation? I feel like it's I've a trip. Learned- it's a real trip. It's so many things are fermented, which I mm-hmm. like. I guess it makes sense. Everything's processed. I think that that's kind of a fun thing to take away too, where mm-hmm. it's just like fermentation as a form of like processing foods because a lot of the people who are eating like fermented foods, like the sauerkrauts, the kombuchas, it's like, oh, like we're so healthy. Like everything's like, like natural. Better, natural, blah, blah, blah. It's like I would never eat anything that's like processed. Exactly. Everything is fake. None of it's actually good for you, except for, like, maybe tangentially. And, uh, nope. Also, I guess we could just take away that nobody in Asia has any clue who started what. They just, just... They just all have a lot of issues with each other claiming credit. I mean, the thing is, I think we should probably assume it's, like, somewhere in between Korea and China, because they did everything. I just assume that everyone was doing it all simultaneously. Also and, true. And, like, one asshole wrote it down and the other didn't. Because, like, there's so many people in the world, it's very arrogant to assume that you're the first to do anything. Totally. And, like, I enjoy having a, st- uh, like, discussing that as a starting off point of, like, this is where this comes from. But, like, the fact of the matter is, nothing comes from one place. <laughs> That's absurd. It's like how my mom always said to me, she's like, you have not, there will never be an original thought that comes out of your head. And I'm like, thanks, Elsie. It's true. It's fucking true. I'm good with it. It's like, it's nice to try and have original thoughts. I'm not looking for that. <laughs> I'm just here to eat my Kit Kat ice cream bars and chat with you and have a nice time. I'm into that. Perfect. Well, we love you all very much and we'll see you after the summer because we're having hot girl summer now. Yeah. Yeah. Soy sauce summer. <laughs> Yeah, so we saw summer. Yeah, that's exactly it. Um, yeah, so that's pretty much all for us for the next couple months. Maybe we'll pop in with a bonus app just because. Um, otherwise, follow us on Instagram at Pantry Staples Pod. Leave us a nice comment on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, all of that jazz. Um, tell your friends, tell your foes. Tell them and. We'll talk to you next season. Excellent. Goodbye.
Bye.